Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. I'd like you to take your copy of the Word of God and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Let's get into a new chapter this morning. So we're in verse number 1. <clears throat> See if we can follow the logic of the author this morning says, therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains to enter his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed entered the rest, just as he said, if I, as I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain time today, saying through David after so long a time, just as it had been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his work as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. All right, that's kind of a technical thing. Let's see what we can learn from all that. When you're little, you're always eager to grow, to get bigger and more independent, to get through the current thing and onto the more exciting stage of life. I want to get done school so I can go off to college, says all the college students. I want to, then you're there for a while, then you're like, I want to get done college so I can get out of my own and I can make money. And then I want to move on and get married and have a family. And in our early years, we're always so sure that the best is yet to come. But once you get to be in your 50s, kind of like me and John Murdoch here, you know, we start to realize that, man, uh, we are so eager to get on to the best things yet to come. We blew through our youth. And uh, our best days maybe are behind us. John, what, what, what do we have to look forward to? <laughs> well, I got some good news for you, brother, and for all of us. If you listen carefully, you're going to learn from Hebrews chapter 4 how the rest is yet to come. The rest. So, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, and the point that the author is making in chapter 4 is a continuation of what was said in chapter 3. What was the point he was making in chapter 3? Last time we were in chapter 3, he challenged us, and we learned from Journey as well, to don't stop believing. Some of you remember that sermon. Some of you fell asleep. <laughs> Unbelief is a big deal, so much so that the author describes it as evil, an evil, unbelieving heart. People get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and that hard-heartedness, that unbelief provokes God. Chapter 3, verse number 14. For we have been partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance 
firmer to the end. While it was said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me. For who provoked him? When they had heard, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. Verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So unbelief. That's what we were talking about last week. Don't stop believing. <clears throat> Here's an interesting thought. What exactly does hard-heartedness, unbelief, provoke God to do? Basically, it provokes God to give you what you're asking for. The example the author points to are the children of Israel who followed Moses out of Egypt. He was leading them to the promised land, a place where they would have rest, freedom from slavery, and rest from their wilderness wanderings, a place where they would receive abundant blessings. But the whole time, the people complained, and they doubted, and they rejected God's leading through Moses. And then when they got to the promised land, they didn't believe they could occupy it. So God finally said, you know what? You don't want the land? Fine. You won't get it. You will not enter. You will not receive the rest. You're not going to get the blessings. You're going to stay right here in the wilderness until you die. The people provoke God to give them what they asked for. But here's the thing. When we are deceived by sin, when we are declaring what we want from a place of unbelief, what we want, what we ask for, is not what we need. So the story goes, a well-to-do lady was traveling on a train with her child and a nanny, and the mother was tired, so she wanted to take a nap on the train, but she couldn't rest because she keeps hearing in the seat behind her the nanny telling the child, no, no, don't touch, and the child, whining and crying. None of your children do that, but you know, sometimes people's children, they whine and they cry. And uh, this keeps going on, and, and the baby keeps crying, and the baby keeps insisting, and uh, the mom is getting so exasperated, she finally says, just give him what he asked for. And so the nanny stops managing the child, and it's quiet. She's like, oh, finally. She closes her eyes, but within a moment, she hears this scream, and she jolts awake. Ah, what happened to the baby? Well... What the child wanted was a wasp on the window, and the nanny listened to the mom and let the child have what he wanted. So, turns out grabbing a wasp is not very good for you. So, of course, in that little illustration, we are the whiny crybabies, right? And God is trying to give us what we need. He's trying to prevent us from hurting ourselves, but we are so ignorant and immature, we grab a hold of wasp, thinking, oh, this will be fun, and I really want this. We won't believe God's word when he tells us it's going to hurt us. We won't believe God's word when he tells us of all the wonderful blessings he has in store for us. No, we want what we want when we want it. We believe the lies, the deceitfulness of sin, and our whining and crying and unbelief provokes God to give us what we ask for. And... Many of us in here, in hindsight, can testify grabbing wasp is no fun. And I have some amens in the front row and some back there as well. Yes, you've done that. One time, I was nine years old, I was riding my bicycle, and a wasp flew up, flew up my pant leg. And you know when you're riding, like, and the wasp is up in there, and then your, your pants clamp down on it. And so the wasp started stinging me in uh, my inner thigh, very close to some sensitive areas. And... Uh, 
you know, you really don't want that to be spung by a wasp anytime, but that was like extra concerning. Now, uh, you can't really bike home and go to your room and take your pants off and dig it out. The wasp is kind of requiring you to deal with it right at that moment, right? There's no other way to deal with this situation, but you know, when you're nine years old, one of your worst fears, the biggest embarrassing thing you could ever think of is taking your pants off in public, right? So you gotta take your pants off and you're out there screaming and crying with your pants down. And uh, I know this is a great visual. <laughs> I don't know why I do this, Noah. It's just, it gets your attention. So I'm out there with my pants down, crying and screaming. And the neighbor mom, bless her heart, she wants to come out and help me. And that was so lovely of her, except for you really don't want an audience in this predicament. Embarrassing. I really hate wasps, what I'm trying to tell you. I don't recommend you let them fly up your pants, and I don't recommend you grab a hold of them. And the author of Hebrews doesn't recommend you provoke God into giving you what you ask for. God created us. He knows what we need. He knows his blessings and his plans for us. He knows he's leading us, and where he's leading us, it's to rest. You have to believe him. Stop asking for wasps. You just might get one. Therefore, he says, let us fear. Oh, no, no. God should not make us fearful. That's not very nice. He ought to motivate us with gentle words of praise and positive affirmation and pats on the back. So much anxiety and phobia in the world. It, it wouldn't, we shouldn't add to that negative energy. Yeah, that sounds nice. And yet, I will quote the word of God to you, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter 10. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs 14, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Proverbs 19, the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. What sounds good is not the same as what is good. If I ever remove the fear of the Lord from the sermons, I will be leading this church to death. And this is why so many churches are dying. The fear of being politically incorrect is more than the fear of the Lord. The fear of being out of step with culture in many places is more than the fear of the Lord. The fear of criticism of peers and friends and family is more than the fear of the Lord. But Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, Now I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. After that, there's nothing they could do to you. But I warn you to fear the one who, after he kills someone, has the power to throw that person in hell. Yes, I say, fear him. Let us fear, the author says. Of what? What are we to be afraid of? Coming short of the promise to enter the rest. While a promise remains to enter his rest, any one of you seem to have come short of it. Be afraid of that. 
Well, what does that look like? What does that mean, coming short of the promise to enter rest? We have to define the terms. Now, the audience we have to remember are, the book of the, is called Hebrews. The audience is Hebrews. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate that. That was good Bible knowledge coming out there. The author are Hebrews. They're Jews. The, the audience are Hebrews. And they have a preconceived idea of what words like the rest and the promise is when they hear promise they are people of covenant and they think of the covenants that god made with abraham and moses and david and they think of those promises the promises of moses abrahamic covenant land seed and blessings on the descendants of abraham we will not be slaves we will not be ruled by hostile nations we will be free in our own land we will have a king the davidic covenants will have a king that will conquer all of our enemies and he will rule according to our laws and our customs and we will be great and we will rule the world that's their idea of promise and rest rest from being oppressed rest from having to pay taxes also when they heard the rest they would think of the sabbath day the day of rest right god created the world in six days and on the seventh he rested I think the next couple of verses, the author is expanding the audience's understanding of what the promise is and what rest is. And it's going to seem kind of basic to some of us, but we need to cover the, the detailed argument here in Hebrews. So, chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, who's just as they also? Well, the people that came out of, Egypt, right? Those people back then, they, they were the people that we were talking about in chapter 3. Uh, they also uh, provoked God to wrath and did not enter the land. They had the good news of the land and rest. They didn't get it. The information didn't profit them. Why? Because it was not united with faith. Verse 2. For indeed, they had the good news preached to us, just as they, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So the information didn't profit them. That was chapter 3, verse 19. So we see they were not able to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. Don't stop believing. But then the audience here in Hebrews uh, could argue. They, the, the, the Jews could argue. Yeah, but... Where are they now? Well, we're in our land, right? Joshua and our ancestors, that, that, that generation didn't get in, but Joshua and our ancestors got in. And look, here we are. We're now living in the land. We enter God's rest. So we're good, right? Verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. Notice the believing is connected to the rest. Just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What does that mean? We who have believed enter the rest. In what sense? Are we talking about land? Are we talking about Abrahamic covenant? Rest from wilderness wanderings? How have we entered the rest? So this is where the author is expanding the audience understanding of what rest is. Verse number four. For he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they will not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. So this declaration, they should all enter my rest, it's not just that 
generation that Moses is leading, it's for us as well. Rest is more than just the physical promised land. There's this ultimate rest that God is enjoying that's connected to himself. Hence the title, the rest is yet to come. Verse number four, his work was completed and he rested. This is the point he's making. God rested on the seventh day from his work. So when he speaks of rest there, a verb, God rested, but then he says, they will not enter my rest. And when he says my rest, it's not an action. It's not a verb of resting. It's a now. The rest is, well, the heavenly blessings, which God is where he's dwelling and what he's doing. And he promises that to the preserving believer in Christ to partake on that after our toil and our labor is done on earth, then that's the ultimate rest we're looking forward to. And you know how we have said, going through this study, the point of Hebrews is to teach how Jesus is better, that Jesus is greater than the old Jewish system. Well, this rest that Jesus is leading to is better, is greater than the promised land that the uh, Israelites were trying to get into. So getting the promised land is not the final rest that the audience should be focused on. That's just a partial rest. The rest is yet to come. Here's the author's evidence. Here's how he proves his point with this logic. Follow it. So verse number four, he said somewhere is concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from his work. So the concept of rest, first of all, predates the land because God rested before there was any concept of promised land. God didn't enter Canaan land to rest. So rest is not simply a location. If I was going to tell you about my home, uh, I could be talking about my address down in Piney Point. Some Billy Morgan, our missionary last week, came and stayed with me in my home. Well, you think, okay, he's down in Piney Point. Or I also could be not talking about my address in Piney Point. Maybe I'm referring to my home when I was in Canada. I could say home and be talking back home. If I say back home, you guys say, oh, he's telling Canadian stories again, eh? That's what he's going to talk about, right? Uh, or I could be talking about my family unit, my home. Uh, my, my, it could be my wife and kids. Or what if I'm talking about uh, my, where I grew up? And it's like, okay, or is that your parents? Or is that your trailer? Home is not simply an address, is it? That's not how we use it. Rest is not simply a location. The Jews were in the promised land, and yet they may not enter God's rest. This is the point he's making. The author's referencing something David said to prove his point in verse number five. Again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Well, he's quoting Psalms 95, where David says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. For he's our God, and we are his people of his pasture. We're the sheep of his hand. Today, now listen to this. This is the logic. He says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as they did in the wilderness, tested him and tested his works for 40 years. God was disgusted with that generation and said that they are my people who err in their heart. They did not know my way. Therefore, I swore in my anger. They will not enter my rest. So David applied that passage to the people in his time. David was warning the people there in his day who were in the promised land who did have a righteous king. The nation of Israel was not under servitude of Rome or a foreign power when David was on the throne. That era, think about it, would have been seen by the Jews as the 
ideal time, one of the greatest, glorious times that the nation ever enjoyed. They had the covenants. They had the promises of God. They had a righteous king. And even in that time, David warns them, today, don't harden your heart or you might not get the rest. But David, wait, we're in the land. You're our king. How is it possible that we would not have the rest when we're already here? Well, the logical answer is because this is not all that rest is. And once again, you can say it with me. The rest is yet to come. Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as he said before, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them the rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So verse 7, the warning spoken to Exodus was still relevant to the people in David's day, even after so long a time. And the warning is still relevant for the current Hebrew audience in, uh, what was it, did I tell you this was, 65, 65 AD? And the warning is still relevant to St. Mary's audience in 2022. Verse number eight says the logic. If Joshua got them, given them the rest, they wouldn't have spoken of another day after that. So there's more rest to come. Verse nine. So there remains a rest, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So when they say Sabbath, or we say Sabbath, we automatically think what? A day, right? The last day of a seven-week, there's a one 24-hour period of time at the end of your week, which is the Sabbath rest. And that makes sense because the seventh day is called the Sabbath day. But Sabbath does not just mean day. The word Sabbath can be used to modify a year. We see this in Leviticus chapter 25, where God provides instructions for the Sabbath year to be observed by the Israelites when they were in the promised land. So it says that if you, for six years, sow your fields, for six years, prune your vineyards, gather your crops, but on the seventh year, the land is to have a what? A Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards, do not reap or groan of itself or the harvest and grapes, or the unattended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. So every seventh year, there was to be a time where they didn't plant or prune the crops and the, the Sabbath day was the rest every week. And this rest applied to the farmland once every seven years. A Sabbath year was also when they were supposed to let the slaves go and free everybody of debt. And I think we should still do that. Amen? Yeah. Wouldn't that be great if you could get uh, seven, seven years in your mortgage? And no, oh, it's a Sabbath year. I just bought the house in the sixth year. Too bad. It's uh, free. Right? That, incidentally, you, we do still see the remnants of that in our culture because they tell you if you, um, if you go bankrupt, you'll have bad credit for how long? Seven years, right? So you got to endure seven years and then you're free from your bad credit after seven years. That ties back into that biblical concept. So the rest is not just location and Sabbath rest is not just a day. It's more. I want to show you another little rabbit trail interesting pattern of the seven days of creation. Um, second Peter chapter two, three, Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years 
and a thousand years is a day. And we say, well, you know, because God's eternal, a thousand years is nothing to him. Or that's, that's, a, that's a good way to take that. But also some people take it very literally. The ancient Jews, they believed that humanity has 7,000 years total. That's going to be the, the scope of all of humanity. 6,000 years of toil and labor under the rule of sinful human government. But a Sabbath, a seventh final thousand years will be the reign of the Messiah. And we too believe in this thousand year reign because it's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20 when uh, it says, I saw an angel come down from heaven holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he took hold of dragon, the serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. He would not deceive the nations any longer until that thousand years. We call that the millennial kingdom, the, right, the earthly rule of Jesus comes to an end. So that's an interesting theory. There is a total of 7,000 years pre, pre, preordained for the world, 6,000 of sinful uh, existence, and then a thousand righteous rule of the Messiah since the creation of Adam till Jesus Christ. The scholars say that that was approximately 4,000 years. So is there only 2,000 years left before the millennial kingdom? This is, uh, what, 2022, according to our Roman Greco calendar. Scholars speculate that Jesus was crucified in 29 or 30 AD, not 100% sure. If that's when the 2,000 years started, and we know that there's a seven-year Great Tribulation before the second coming of Jesus, then maybe the Great Tribulation starts the fall of this year, or maybe next year. That would be... 6,000 years of fallen human history and one final thousand years, a sabbatical millennial reign of Jesus as the Messiah, King of Kings and Lord of Lords coming back. Could it all kick off this fall? Maybe. I don't know, right? I can't be dogmatic about that. But Jesus did tell us to what? Watch and be ready. So always watching and being ready. Okay, that was a crazy, blew your mind there. You can talk more about that later. For verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So the uh, Greek word used here translated into the English work is ergon. And when you go to your Greek Septuagint, that's your Old Testament uh, Hebrew translated into Greek. The same Greek word ergon was used in Genesis chapter 3 verse 17 where the curse was placed on Adam where it says then to Adam, he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. So listening to his wife got him in trouble. The reverse is now true. If I listen to my wife, I get out of trouble. So that's important tippet for all you guys out there. But because you listened to her and you ate from the tree as I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you with hard ergon would have been the Greek. Hard labor, you shall eat of it all the days with the sweat of your brow, painful toil, work, labor, that's the Greek word in the Greek Septuagint there. The toil, the labor, the painful work. There is coming a rest when we will be free from the curse. We will have rest, verse 10 says, from our work as God did. Will that only be for a day or a year? Before man fell, they were living in the Garden of Eden. And every day 
They were at rest. They were in a state of rest. The labor came, the curse came when? After the sin. And also came the separation from God. But God, meanwhile, he's abiding in his rest. On the seventh day he rested and he's continuing on ongoing rest. Our sin separates us from God and his rest. And thus, our painful labor for the guys, the toil for the women. There's another whole worse painful labor, isn't it? And that's the part of the curse, the childbearing. So think about this. Back when the nation of Israel was slaves in Egypt, they never would have been allowed to have a day off. They were never given a rest. They would have had to work whenever they were told to work. Forever long, they were told to work. Rest would have been impossible for them. But once they were free from Egypt, they were then able to get that law and practice their weekly sabbatical rest. And spiritually, that is true of all of us. While someone is trapped in the bondage of sin, while we are still a slave to sin, while we are dead in our trespasses and sin, rest is never a possibility. Only once we've come out of the bondage and we're in this journey out of Egypt, this destination of rest is even an option for us. Sadly, people trapped in sin are deceived into thinking that God's eternal rest is their destination. You know that, right? Most religions and ancient or even current, they have this notion of paradise and afterlife, some expression of transcending to a better place once this physical life is over. And here in the West, the concept of heaven, that's widely understood. And you can glean what people believe about heaven when uh, you go to pop culture, when you go to mu the music especially. The basic assumption is everyone goes to heaven when they pass on. Right? This is why everyone speaks of their dead ones as being in a better place. They're all in a better place now. Rest in peace. People think little children who die become angels. And they're up there flying around as angels. And our loved ones, they're up there looking down on us. And then we have these great lyrics and songs. You know, there's holes in the floor of heaven and mom's tears are falling down as she looks down at us. And, and uh, then, you know, Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door or building her stairway to heaven. Everyone assumes this is heaven's automatic, which is why the gospel message can sound so very offensive to people when we inform them that eternal rest is not where they're headed. It's not automatic. Actually, ACDC, who wrote a lot of catchy tunes, their song, Highway to Hell, is biblically accurate. No stop sign, speed limit, nobody going to slow me down. Like a wheel, going to spin it. Nobody going to mess me around. Hey, Satan, paying my dues, playing in a rocking band. Hey, mama, look at me. I'm on my way to the promised land. I'm on the highway to hell. Should I even be singing that in church? Whole generation, yeah, we love that. Sing along, think it's all just tongue in cheek. <laughs> but it's 100% fact. It's actually accurate. Thank you, ACDC, for writing a... Biblically accurate rock song. If you're trapped in a life of sin, if you're not believing the promise, eternal life is not an option for you. You are on a highway to hell. Verse 11, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. 
So there's the summary statement for the whole discussion this morning. Let us be diligent. Spodo, what is it? Spodadzo is the Greek word to make every effort, to be earnest, that you're urgently focusing on. This is what you're actively paying attention to. What? Entering the rest. Entering the rest. How do we get there? Through faith in Jesus, according to John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And by believing, you will have life through his name. But if you fall from the faith, according to Hebrews, you will not enter the rest. Verse number 11, one more time. Let us be diligent to enter the rest so that no one falls away through following the same example of disobedience. So the author here is endeavoring to expand the audience's understanding of what rest is and how to obtain it. He sees that people are assuming that they are going to receive the promises of God, but they're rejecting believing in Jesus. He knows this is going to spell disaster for these people at the end of their life. They're not going to enter that eternal rest if they continue on their current way because Jesus is the way. He is the only way. The path they're on is the highway to hell. Well, hell is a scary concept. Jesus warns people of it. I take the Bible very literally when it speaks of hell. One of the reasons why I'm trusting in Jesus. Jesus is our salvation. What's he saving us from? The wrath of God. That's the main thing we're being saved from. Dear friends, take these warnings seriously. Put your faith in Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Make every effort to enter that rest so that you will not follow that bad example. Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, it would be negligent of me, I believe, if I did not give you an opportunity to respond to the urgency and the seriousness of that message, that you would be earnest this morning to say, I want to believe in Jesus. How do I do that, Pastor? You just believe and speak these words, express them to him, say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose again. I believe that you are going to make an intercession, that you will save me from the wrath of God. Please, save me from the wrath of God. Please, let me enter that rest that you've spoken of in your word. If you would just express that to God, praying, he knows your heart, he knows your thoughts, he knows what's all going on in your mind. That's another scary thought, that he knows everything you think. But speak to him that way. Ask him. Express that faith in your words. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. You will be saved. Lord, we pray that somebody here today would have done that for the first time. Lord, we pray that all of us here today would be urgent and diligent to hang on to our faith and to declare our faith to help people who are lost, who don't know you, who are on that highway to hell, that we could see the perishing rescued and folks enter that rest. And we do continue to pray for our prodigals, our children who are away and they have not, so they've stepped away from what they've been taught. Bring them back, Lord, we pray. Any means necessary, bring them back. Save them for eternity. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.